Houston, we have a podcast. You're listening to the Premier Rockets Podcast. It's H-Town Hoops. Hosted by Brandon Scott and Adam Spolane. All right, H-Town Hoops Podcast. Brandon Scott, Adam Spolane, SportsRadio610.com and Odyssey. We're coming off another Rockets win, Adam. And before we really get into the basketball part of things, I did want to take some time to acknowledge uh, Paul Silas, the life of Paul Silas, and who recently passed away, father, obviously, of Rockets head coach Stephen Silas and an NBA lifer. Uh, wanted to take this moment to acknowledge that because uh, we have not spoken since uh, Paul Silas's passing and just wanted to acknowledge that and 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 give you an opportunity also, Adam, to, to speak to uh, kind of what from your understanding, what Paul Silas kind of means to Steven Silas and, and sort of your overall thoughts on him as uh, as an NBA life. I mean, he spent, what, 17 years in the league as a player. He went straight from playing in Seattle to coaching in San Diego. And then he was an assistant for a long time under some really good coaches, whether it was uh, Pat Riley in New York, Chuck Daly in New Jersey. He was in Phoenix as an assistant, Charlotte as an assistant. Then he became a head coach again. So he was a head coach in, in San Diego until 83 and then basically had to wait another 20 years to get another opportunity uh, to be a head coach again, or not, not 20 years, but about 15, 16 years uh, to get another head coaching opportunity. Uh, he was with the Hornets and in Charlotte, and then he went with them to New Orleans and then uh, was in Cleveland with LeBron James as his first head coach. And then when Charlotte kind of needed a head coach as they were really starting to take a bit of a downturn after Larry Brown had been the head coach there, um, Paul Silas got the call and, and you know kind of took them through a couple of really hard years. And just you, you understand how just the regard that he's held in just by the way that uh, he was just welcomed back every single place that he went, including especially Charlotte, where uh, he's replaced by uh, Steve Clifford a couple of years after he, he left. And uh, he basically took Steve Clifford under under his wing. And he's you know, he was a constant presence at games in Charlotte, even after uh, he had left and, you know, just being around Steven Silas now for almost two and a half seasons, whenever you mentioned his dad, he would just talk about him with so much pride just by, you know, by what he had accomplished in the league, both as a player, as, as a, as a coach, just the way that people thought of him just as a man. And uh, it, it's a big loss, I think for the entire NBA family, you, you've seen it really over the last uh, 36 hours, however long it's been since since the news came through, just the constant statements from basically everyone in the league. And you, you had one from Pat Riley, um, you know, uh, earlier today, too. And, and he coached under Riley in, in New York. So it, uh, it's a sad it, it's a sad time. Uh, obviously, condolences go out to the Silas family. And uh, you just hope to see Stephen, you know, back on the sideline soon. And just the one thing, the regard that people hold Paul Silas is the same regard people hold Stephen Silas. I don't think you will you will not find anyone say a bad thing about Paul Silas, and you will not find anyone uh, to say a negative thing about Stephen Silas either. Yeah, one thing that I, I don't want to discredit on with Stephen Silas when I say this, because Stephen Silas is his own man and does command the respect that you just mentioned, but a lot of the credibility, a lot of the hope, in Stephen Silas is built in the respect for Paul Silas, the stock in which he comes from, 
And you can see that in Steven Silas whenever, like you mentioned, whenever you talk to him, whenever he talks about his father or has talked about his father in the past. And so I don't think that even Steven Silas would shy away from or has ever shied away from the influence that his father had on him and the role that being the son of Paul Silas has had on his life, why he is who he is exactly today. And and it, and it really is a testament. Like if you were going to model yourself after anyone, if you were going to hit the lottery in terms of uh, who, who to be your role model as a father, and, and especially if you're going to be uh, someone who's a basketball coach, take take this line of profession on top of that. I mean, what a what a better way, it, it, would there be a better way to have kind of a the, the stock that Steven Silas has had? And so, um, so I, I said all that to say like, I respect Stephen Silas independently, but a lot of it starts with, hey, man, this is the son of Paul Silas. And, and Paul Silas, one of the tougher guys that that you'll know from the NBA, kind of give you know, that old school mentality, really old school, tough guy. You know, I can I can remember him mixing it up even as an older guy, as a coach uh, with different players when he had to or when he felt like he had to. Um, obviously, for me and, and for both of us, obviously, he was a he was a coach by the time we came around like we wouldn't. We wouldn't have been around for him as a player, but you look up and this is a guy who was a five-time all in, uh, you know, all uh, NBA all defensive team, you know, twice on the first team, you know, three NBA championships, like a very accomplished basketball player in his own right. Uh, he went to Creighton and had a season where he averaged twenty rebounds a game, which you know we would we would marvel at today. Um, and it also speaks to kind of like that old school type of guy, six seven, a six seven guy leading the leading NCAA in rebounds. You know, so just so much respect for him. Even the stuff that I wasn't around for, that I wasn't around to see, that I just hear about, and, and everything that I've seen. So, uh, and obviously, like you said, like you mentioned, condolences out to the Silas family, and we'll be glad to get Steven back whenever whenever that time is appropriate. So, you know, it's funny too. Um, the way that Paul Silas sees saw basketball is the exact opposite of how his son is coaching basketball right now. Yes, he'd, he'd always he'd always joke about that. Uh, uh, he'd get texts from his dad after games and be like, "Hey, but you got to post up more. You got to play some bigs." When Stevens running this five out offense with the Rockets, I always found that to be very funny. And you know, Paul Silas, big, rugged, you know, rebounder. You know. And and Stephen obviously coached under his dad, but also he went and coached under Don Nelson. So you know, you had the two uh, two just polar opposites with who Stephen Silas really learned the game from. Yeah, and, and I'll say this on a personal personal note, Adam. I can like personally relate to what that relationship is like with a dad who is you know older with a totally different mentality and maybe even the the way he might even view the world in some ways, like. And but also still identifying very much with the things that he taught you. Me and my dad are exactly like that. My dad is also a little bit bigger than me, like 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 uh, Paul Silas was uh, with Stephen Silas. And so it, it looks a lot and, and very relatable for me when I watch and, and observe their relationship. So that's always kind of kind of been a cool thing. I, you know, I want to ask you, though, kind of to, to bring it back on the court. Um, obviously, the Rockets were able to beat the Bucks on uh on monday or i'm sorry on sunday night and look really cool game i would i would argue that this game in a lot of ways like we joked about how they beat the suns uh several nights ago uh and how lucky it was at the or how lucky it felt at the end 
but this was really a game where they executed at the end and really from start to finish. Uh, well, maybe not the initial start where they're down 10 to two, but after that, you know, it's such an entertaining game and a competitive game on their part. But to bring it back, just since we're mentioning coaching, what did you make of how John Lucas filled in? Obviously, John Lucas has coached in the NBA forever, played in the NBA like Paul Silas, an NBA lifer. But what did you think of how John Lucas filled in and, and maybe the differences that you saw and how that game was was coached and played uh, on Sunday night? I didn't see any differences, to be honest with you. I don't I don't know if you did, but I, I mean, because it's not like they did anything, you know, significantly different with the rotations. I think they're the one change that you have seen, and this goes back to even Thursday, is that they're playing KJ Martin with the starters a little bit more. Uh, he's gotten five minutes with the with the other four starters each of the last two games. So I think that's sort of maybe one small little tweak that you notice, but for the most part. I think that they ran what they normally run. I think that they played who they normally played. Um, the game plan, you know, what was certainly installed before, um, you know, Silas left the team. I mean, they had they had a practice on on Saturday, and I think just the one thing that they talked about after the game was just accountability. And they had a talk, you know, before I guess it was before practice on Saturday, where they hey, they got to be better than what they were in San Antonio. And I think that that was really the big thing is that they just played with a little bit more passion. And that was not an easy game by any stretch. It they, it did not go the way that you would normally see a game that they win go. I mean, normally if they're going to win a game, they're going to make dozens of three-pointers and get to the free throw line a bunch. And none of that happened yesterday. They won a game where they didn't even score 100 points. And I think that's what was impressive about it. I'll tell you the difference that I saw, Adam. Very, very distinct difference. And you saw it too. We all saw it, man. Yeah, I know and, what you're and well, and and it was highlighted by the best sequence that we've seen that I felt like we've seen from the Rockets. An exciting sequence that I almost cannot stop watching. It's it starts with there's a little over, I guess, ten minutes left in the quarter, and Jalen Green gets a gets a pass on an inbound from the baseline. It's a three, and you go back and forth with a couple of. Uh, uh, really key defensive plays by Jabari Smith, passes by Jabari Smith, and it will first the pass by Jalen Green, but also ultimately finishes from Kevin Porter Jr. And it's one of the best sequences that you'll find from the Rockets all season. And it, and it involved Alperin and Goon, obviously taking the ball up the floor, uh, stumbling with, uh, with with Drew Holiday on him, finding Jabari Smith, Jabari Smith finding Kevin Porter Jr. So this, there, it's basically this seven-point sequence uh, from the Rockets. And after it, when the timeout is finally called, you see John Lucas in ways that you will never see Stephen Silas. And it was, it, it, like, I, I don't know if I've seen a coach, a, a, a Rockets coach in recent memory, purport himself in such a way on the sideline and it was just so cool to see because you know it's just a fleeting moment in time and what it's for the reason why we're there is a very emotional reason so it feels like a very uh, appropriate response and i and i and i just loved it that was the main the main difference that i saw wasn't necessarily anything in the rotation i thought i thought there was a little bit of a difference in staggering Jalen green and kevin porter jr but maybe that i don't know in full disclosure I missed a lot of the San Antonio game because I was in Philadelphia for Army Navy, but maybe that was already happening and I and I'd already missed it. They they, they alternate. They they kind of go back and forth. But my my assumption is that Silas put that in before he left. Was that hey, yeah, that makes gonna, sense. I'm gonna stagger 
you know, I, I think that the substitution patterns were basically given to Lucas from Silas. That makes sense. That that totally makes sense. But but again, man, the the passion on the sideline and, and again proportionate to what was going on and why they were there. Um, and and like John Lucas said after the game, they did it. They did it for Coach. You know, they did it for Silas, the Silas family. You'd have to imagine. And I just thought it was a really cool moment that they would come out and and play that type of game against one of the better teams in the Eastern Conference and probably in the NBA. One of the one of the few teams in the mix for that you would say is a contender to win the title this year. Yeah, Lucas definitely gets more animated than Silas, and you, he even does that as an assistant. It's, of course. If you go to a game, just watch Lucas on the bench, and he'll throw stuff after bad – normally it's after bad stuff. You don't really get to see him celebrate the good stuff nearly as much as he did yesterday. But he, he is very animated just because he's really the bad cop on the coaching staff, and he's the one who really gets on these guys. And I remember the one thing he said last night about Jalen Green is like, I work with him every day. He doesn't get any compliments from me. And so he's he's hard on these guys. And I, I do think that it was probably fun for him to see these guys play the way that they did, play really play basketball the right way last night. They were unselfish with the basketball late in the game. They defended. Uh, they stuck to their they stuck to their assignments. They were locked in on that end of the floor. And to see them get rewarded with a win, I think is important because if you do all that stuff right and you lose a game, then I think it can be hard sometimes to recover from that because you're sitting there saying, man, we did everything we're supposed to be doing, yet we still can't get a win. Well, yesterday they did everything that they did. It won. And so that just shows, hey, if we play like this, we're going to win a lot more often. Yeah, man. Well, on the point about John Lucas, anyone who's been around him and knows him knows that he is a guy who is about, who teaches and and is about tough love, but always has the right intentions. Like, cares deeply about the people around him, but will will give you tough love. But to, to the point of the game, I point out that sequence because I thought it was just a really cool sequence for, for the Rockets. And obviously Jalen Green had a big night. You talked about that. Uh, John Lucas talked about that after the game, it being one of his better nights. He is, I feel like, really emerging as a well-rounded offensive player who makes Better decisions. Still, there, there's still sometimes where he, he and Kevin Porter Jr. both will do a maddening thing or two per game, almost it seems like. But but both are, and I think this has been noted on the broadcast, and and, and others who write about the Rockets have noticed this. I, I feel like both are just in more control than you've seen them in the past. Like both of these guys, Jalen Green and Kevin Porter Jr. as a guard duo. And I, like, I feel like that is directly correlated and related to some of the success that we're seeing or, or progress that we're seeing with the Rockets. Would you agree? Yeah, I think especially last night, just the decision making was really good. Mm-hmm. And I think it, the Bucks aren't the type of team that are going to look Milwaukee's a they entered the game second in defense uh, going into last night's game. But while it's a great defensive team, it's not the type of team that's going to turn you over. But they can force you into some mistakes just with all the length that they had. And the Rockets didn't really fall into that trap. I thought they played just a very under-controlled offensive game. They ran when they had the opportunities to run. And I think that that's what uh, – we talked about growth and just improvement uh, last week after they had won the four out of seven. And I really didn't think that you necessarily saw it in those games in particular. But I did think that you saw it last night. I think that you saw a great deal of growth and just maturity overall with how they played that game, not just – you know, 
quarters one through three, but also in crunch time when things really mattered most. When you're going up against a veteran team that has won a championship, that has been in a bunch of deep playoff runs, and they showed composure, they executed their stuff, and Milwaukee was the team that could not execute. Yeah, well, you're talking about executing down the stretch and showing composure. So Thursday night, I believe, is going to be Jabari Smith Jr. bobblehead night. Thursday night. But I want to go to this point that you made about how they closed the game. Because Jabari, and, and you made this point also on Twitter. Uh, a few of us also noticed it, wanted to note this as well, that Jabari statistically had somewhat of a deceptive game. One that you might say, oh, man, the number three overall pick wasn't impressive today. This is – He was you know, terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you wanted to – if you wanted to – sort of play to that narrative you could say oh man is this a, is this one of the games one for whatever what was he one for nine what, what was the number one, one for nine. nine one for nine is he you know is this reason for concern and it's like oh well, you, you you definitely didn't watch the game nor did you check the plus minus numbers either because um because the guy had double digit rebounds had a few steals a block and and when he guarded Giannis Antetokounmpo was highly effective. Obviously, Giannis was able to score in him. And you'll see some highlights that Giannis will have on Jabari. But if you watch the game, if you watch the entire game, you'll see Jabari holding his own and glimpses of what is to come or what could be to come with him if everything develops as you expect it to. I know you've written, Adam, uh, sportsradio610.com, gallerysports.com, which is a new venture that you've taken on as well about – the rookies and i think this is a good opportunity to to, to look at jabari smith and, and, and highlight what you mentioned and how you know he he was beyond the box score necessarily in that game and, and and showed you some things that you could really feel good about it and has shown you some things that you could feel good about for the last i don't know what would you say a couple of weeks or so at least yeah Giannis. just going back to it was the third game of the year when they played Giannis the first time and he absolutely torched them. He scored 44, 17 of 21. They had no answer. And Jabari Smith really, I, I, I'm not going to say he outplayed Giannis, but he made life so difficult on him. And to go from 44 on 17 of 21 shooting to last night, it was 17 points on, or 16 points on, I think, 7 of 17 shooting. I mean, that just shows you how good he was. And he was the honest guy. That was his assignment. He was able to stay out of foul trouble, which is also, you know, that's that's one of the areas where Giannis really thrives is that he gets you in foul trouble. And Jabari was able to stay out of foul trouble last night. Um, he stuck with it. I mean, you're, you're going to get dunked on against Giannis. He's going to be physical with you. But Jabari did not let that get to him. And they gave him the toughest role. That's, that's asking a lot of a rookie. But – he came through and he came through with just a monster game. And I think it was Lucas who said this uh, after practice today, where it's like, yeah, I, I think right after the game, Smith probably didn't think he had a great game just because you look at the box score numbers and they don't look good. One of nine, six points for the number three pick in the draft. That's a rough game. But if, like you said, if you watch the game, and I think that's one of the things that you have to tell a young player that don't worry about what the numbers say, because all of your energy in that game was on the defensive end. And not only, did, did you hold them down? Did you hold their best player down, a two-time MVP down, a finals MVP? You locked him down. But Milwaukee as a team scored 92 points. I mean, that's on that. That's where Jabari Smith gets the credit. And I think that's where you look at that pick and you look at him as a player. And 
the box score numbers for him and the stat line, it's never going to blow you away. It's never going to like say, Hey, this is an MVP type candidate. He's never going to score, you know, 25 a game for a season, but he's going to impact winning. And that's why you draft a guy that high is to have a guy who can impact winning. They don't need him to score 30 a game. That's what Jalen Green's job is. That's what Kevin Porter Jr.'s job is. That's whoever they wind up drafting in the first round this year. That's what his job will be. They'll have a bunch of money to spend in free agency this summer or next summer. That's what those guys will be able to do. For Jabari Smith, just play defense. Worry about that end of the, that end of the floor. You're going to get plenty of open looks. Knock those down. Rebound. Um, get to the rim every now and then. So you got to play within your game. And I think Jabari Smith did that. And he is doing that at a very high level right now. Yeah. And, and also Adam, we've talked about in, in previous episodes, how he's actually also shown confidence to seek out his own shot, but he doesn't play outside of himself. Like he's, he's found at least early on, it seems like, or through this recent stretch that we're talking about, he seems to have found the balance of like an appropriate balance of, Hey, my confidence is higher. I can do this, but also not necessarily playing outside of himself and trying to do too much, you know. And 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 that is one thing that I've been impressed with is as young as he looks and as young as he clearly is, like he looks like a kid out there and you know, like a, just a tall kid out there, but doesn't behave like that or comport himself like that. Like very mature, beyond his years and his looks, and and it's something to be impressed by. And I also think like on the point that you make about, you know, not needing to score 30 points a game. That's what Jalen Green's for. And that's what Kevin Porter Jr.'s for. I think what, like what I was hitting on earlier about them developing and, and, and showing positive signs, I think it's easy for that to kind of overshadow what Jabari's doing. Like that is, that's kind of the, the, the thing to focus on when, when Jalen Green and KJ Martin and Kevin Porter Jr. are dunking and catching lobs on fast breaks, like that's really easy to focus on. But check out, you know, check out Jabari Smith stripping Giannis and Jabari Smith on the next possession getting the block and, you know, and having the awareness to get the pass over to Kevin Porter Jr. without traveling, you know, and, and just kind of these little things where you're like, okay, they're, there are small signs of progress there of, of him being comfortable and, and really playing like the player that you feel felt like and feel like he is, you know. So so that was that was kind of the cool thing for me seeing uh, seeing him on, on Sunday night. And the one thing I'll add to um, after the draft and when they were getting ready for summer league, the one thing that I heard about Javari Smith was just his competitiveness. And he plays the game with an edge. And you go back to that game against the Hawks where they came from behind to win and DeJounte Murray kind of tapped him on the back of the head after he hit a three in his face. And that really, and, and Smith waited a couple possessions and then he got right into DeJounte Murray's face and the whole game flipped after that point. I think that's what he gives you too, is that he gives you that edge. He's not backing down from anyone. And for a guy who's 19 years old, just coming into this league for the first time. And, and he, you know, he might've been starstruck the first time, when he faced Giannis, but he wasn't starstruck yesterday. And I think that he showed that a little bit with the DeJounte Murray thing against the Hawks last month or whenever it was. Uh, it might have been earlier in December where he's not going to back down from anybody now. And I think that that game against the Hawks really showed a lot. And I think that's something that they would not have had in the past. Yeah, so we're talking about Jabari and, and obviously an elite defensive prospect and somebody you got high hopes for defensively. But toward the end of the game, Ryan Hollins, former NBA player, now 
uh, broadcasting Rockets games, color commentary for AT&T Sports, mentioned on the broadcast that he thought this was the highest IQ defensive game that the Rockets have played. And I thought it was an interesting comment because we're talking about how good uh, Jabari Smith was defensively, but there were also some moments that we saw, like I thought Shingun hung in there as best as he could, but particularly Bruno Fernando on the opportunities that he had on Giannis, I thought uh, played pretty well. And, and also the Kevin Porter Jr. play uh, at the end, breaking up that log or sniffing out that play. And I, and I think that's the moment where, if I'm not mistaken, where Ryan Hollins makes the comment about it being a higher IQ defensive game. Just overall, did it, did it feel like, because they've had their moments where they've just had lapses defensively, and that's been the story of why they were where they were. But I thought this was, like, that was kind of one of the things that stood out to me overall was that they seemed to play a better defensive game after the first couple of minutes or so. Yeah, I think, and, and Lucas brought up the Porter play also, where they just read that perfectly. And you could just tell they were locked in for 48 minutes, it felt like. And maybe, like you said, the first couple minutes weren't great, and a lot of that had to do with the offense more than anything, where they were giving up a lot of cheap points in transition. But, yeah, I, I did think that they were locked in, and um, it, it felt like they knew what Milwaukee was running. It felt like they were really well prepared for what Milwaukee was going to do. And they saw everything. They made the plays. They didn't foul a bunch. They didn't put you know Milwaukee to the line. I, I think Giannis wound up with six free throw attempts for the game, something like that. I mean, that's an area where when you lose focus, then all of a sudden, you know, the free throws and the fouls start to pile up against you. So I, I just thought that they were they were able to maintain focus for most of a forty eight minute game, which again, for a bunch of kids, that's a nice step in the right direction because you see it all the time where. There will be breakdown after breakdown after breakdown on the defensive end of the floor. That's where John Lucas always throws stuff over on the bench is, is when stuff like that happens. And they really didn't do that as much yesterday. And it really, you could probably, I haven't gone like and watched the tape, but I bet that the number of times where they had a, a real significant breakdown where they didn't know what they were supposed to be doing, you could probably count it on one hand. All right, Adam, I want to switch to a news item here because Eric Gordon He's been in trade rumors, discussions, however you want to put it, for, what, two years now? How long would you say? How long have we been doing the when's Eric Gordon going to – how long have we been doing the when's Eric Gordon going to get traded thing, would you say? He's been, he's been in trade rumors his whole career. Well, yeah, fair yeah. fair enough. But, but like, no. I guess I guess you could trail it back to since this thing blew, blew up, right? It's yeah. been a possibility. It's been two years now yeah. since the Harden trade, basically. Yeah, so so here we are. There is a report in the Athletic that you know that there was a there was a uh, the Suns were recently engaged in like a three team trade talk that would have sent Crowder to Milwaukee, uh, four bucks second round picks um, along with players to Houston, and either Eric Gordon or Kenny Martin Jr. to Phoenix. And and this is a report from the Athletic. Sham Sharania had this. I thought. Uh, Monday mornings when I saw it. Um, apparently, according to Sharania, the holdup in the potential three-teamer would be that the Rockets want a first-round pick for Gordon, which we've known for a while that's been out there. And at least with Martin, um, they want a, a very good first-rounders, what's in the report, and not about a batch of second-rounders, which is what apparently has been repo uh, proposed. So, um so they have less interest, apparently, in trading Martin. But obviously, Eric Gordon, as we mentioned, has been a part of trade rumors for a couple of years now. 
where do you sort of see this? What are you, are you hearing any, anything behind the scenes or do you have kind of any prediction on where this is going to go? I don't think any of us expect Gordon to be on this team past the trade deadline. At least I would be, I would be somewhat surprised. Maybe you disagree, but it feels like at this point it would, it would be time um, to, to part ways with him. Where are you at on this thing? So I don't think they will trade Martin under any circumstance right now. I think that he's too young and too valuable and he's just playing at such a high level right now. I think that they probably believe he is part of their future and you know he should be. He's been that good um, really since training camp started. On the Gordon stuff, you know, I, I have heard the same thing about a three-team deal um, and, and I had heard basically a, a three-team trade with them, it's funny that it's Milwaukee and Phoenix. They're playing on back-to-back days, on back-to-back games, just because this is the rumor. Was basically they would send Gordon to Phoenix. Phoenix would be um, sending Jay Crowder to Milwaukee, and then basically the Rockets would. Be, and George Hill goes from Milwaukee to Phoenix, and then the Rockets would get back Grayson Allen from Milwaukee, Landry Shamit from Phoenix, and but there were no picks involved. And I think that's the holdup again is that the Rockets would like to get a first-round pick. It, for Eric Gordon, and right now it's just not out there for him. So it's still very early. It's only December twelfth. You got a couple of months until the trade deadline, but I, I do think that they are that they would want a first round pick. And I don't know. It, it was interesting to me that they would seem interested in the Grayson Allen Landry Shamit package, just because those two guys are owed money next season. And it kind of felt like, well, they probably want to keep as much, you know, flexibility, financial flexibility as possible going into free agency, but they can roll their cap space into next year, into the 2024 season, because they basically have two summers worth of cap space where really the the cap space is gone uh, once they have to do the extension um, for, for Jalen Green, once his extension kicks in. So they've got some time and really the 2024 free agency class is much better than the 2023 free agency class. So it would make sense to try and, and roll that over a year if you can. And, and maybe, you know, it, it, to me on the surface, that trade didn't make a whole lot of sense to me because you are adding money to your payroll for next year. But at the same time, Grayson Allen could have value somewhere else. Same thing with Landry Shamit. So maybe you're able to, pawn those off those two guys off to another team and get you know maybe another asset here an asset there so that was the root that's the trade that i had heard uh going back probably a month a month ago um of a possible three-way trade with them phoenix and milwaukee i don't see kj martin going at any point this season but we could see gordon go uh i do think that they value him they value his leadership in the locker room they value his leadership on the floor so if the right deal comes across and my guess is they would trade him but i didn't think they would trade him last year they didn't it kind of felt like they were headed towards trading him before the draft but that trade never materialized so we have to wait and see but i mean eric gordon's a really good player and he should be valued across the league especially for a team trying to win a championship and i guarantee you there will be teams that will be interested in him yeah, and and it doesn't it help a little bit that that he doesn't have guaranteed money after this year. Like it, it seems like that would that would help in at least some flexibility for the on the Rockets end. And I don't know, it just for me adding money. I feel like it's an interesting space. Adding money on, on and like what type of player? What is it? What type of player are you getting in return that that's worth that? Like you play out the scenario, uh, let's say Grayson Allen, for example, of maybe you can flip him or, or Landry Shamit, and maybe you can flip them into something down the road. But 
like is that worth whatever money you take on like i'm not exactly sure i don't i think it's cool that they have the flexibility that they're able to weigh that exactly and that's probably the benefit of it um but i don't know i i guess it just seems like if there was any time to get something for eric gordon and like you said like you just mentioned now there should be teams interested it seems like the market would, would meet the expectation uh to the, the long and short of it right like at at this point with with the flexibility of the deal, like it seems like somebody would be interested and you'd be able to offload that. Yeah, I would agree. I, I do think the one thing that makes Gordon's situation a little complicated, you talk about how he has no guaranteed money for next season, but it's not like it's a team option. It's not even a player's option. It's a, essentially a vesting option where if you trade for him and you win the championship, now that year is guaranteed for next season. So that kind of, you know, it, it messes with your finances a little bit where, um, but I then it's worth it, though, right? Like at that point, I mean, like, would you do you not overpay on the next year for the benefit of the success of the season? You would think. But also at the same time, you're planning out, you know, financially, you know, going forward the next year, the year after that, the year after that. And that's kind of what your budget is. Now, all of a sudden, if you are looking at, well, you know, we're going to be in the tax next year. Now, all of a sudden, you're going to add, you know, another $20 million to your to your payroll and then to what your luxury tax bill might be. That's a lot of money that you're adding. And I think that's why a team like Phoenix wasn't really in play for him last year because of how much money they would have had to pay him for this season to go along with what their luxury tax bill was already looking to be. So I think that's the one complication. If, if he didn't, if he had no money, if he was just a free agent after the season, it was clean like that. Then I think he's a little bit easier to trade, but because there is the prospect that you might have to pay him that money. If this were baseball, it's a little bit different because you don't really have the same type of luxury tax considerations that you have in the NBA. And all these teams in the NBA who are competing for championships are always really, really good. And uh, and they're always going to be over over the cap and right in that luxury tax territory. And so you're basically, you know, it's Eric Gordon. And yeah, you might win a championship, but you're also spending a whole lot of money to get it. Some teams like if it's Golden State, they don't care. They're, they're, they're willing to pay whatever. But that's not going to be the case with everybody. What would you do with K.J. Martin? Like like right now, gut feeling, what is he what is he worth on a long term extension? Is it? Is it the 12 to 14 million dollars that like is it is it listed? Like what is it? it it's kind of hard to for me to predict a reasonable contract for a guy like that who's still trying to get a defined role, but clearly has upside and special qualities. Like you see things that he and Jalen Green do athletically, and you're like, whoa, they only have like a guy or two like this or a few guys that are like this athletically. And you can see where the upside and the intrigue would be. Like, what do you think about his market? Where, how is it materializing so far? You know, I, I don't, it's hard to, to judge what a player is worth to one team compared to another. But if you told me that they would do, you know, a four years, 60 million type deal with KJ Martin, I think that's more than fine. And, and part of it is, the way the money looks today will be very different from the way the money looks a couple of years from now when the cap spikes. So the cap is going to spike in a couple of years and now all these deals look very, very different. And you remember um, the, the, the max extension that James Harden signed with the Rockets right after he was traded. I mean, he was going to be looking at making like $16 million uh, in, in like the third or fourth year of that contract. And here's Ryan Anderson on the team making 20. So the deals that are signed today 
are not going to look nearly as expensive as the deals that are signed in a couple of years. And I think the way that his contract, that, that things are sort of set up, I think it's very similar to, to Chandler Parsons going back you know, six or seven years where um, we're actually going back to, to 2014. So we're almost coming up on a decade, but Parsons for that, after the third year of his contract, he had an option. Uh, if they exercise that option, he would have been unrestricted after the fourth year. But if they decline the option, then he would have been a restricted free agent. It's very similar to what they just had with Jay Sean Tate. For me, I would go ahead and decline the option for next year and try to get something done and, and try to get something signed. And if someone wants to give him an op, uh, an offer sheet, they can go ahead and give him give him an op an, blah. They can go ahead and give him an op, uh, an offer sheet. Will match it because whatever he's getting paid this summer, it's going to look very very cheap a couple summers from now. Yeah, I, I'm with you there so far with KJ. I think a lot of a lot of what I've seen from Rockets Twitter, both media and fans, is KJ's a starter. It's so funny. We're, t- we're talking about the Eric Gordon rumors. It's just so funny watching him out there, you know, just thinking about how he was there for the glory days. And like you mentioned, how he's been a professional through all of this. And there are a lot of fans that are, like, frustrated watching him out there most of us have like a, a ton of respect for Eric Gordon because of just what he's meant to the team and, and the professional he's been throughout the league for as long as he's been doing it. Um, and you're not going to get too many people to say much bad about Eric Gordon either. Um, so like there's a, there's that as well, but KJ Martin is like, you you hear the whispers of like, Hey man, that he feels like he should be starting. Like maybe, Maybe he should be a starter. And, and we've talked about this before, like how much does it matter if he's going to end up playing starter minutes, if he's going to end up being in the game in crucial moments or, or playing play crucial minutes. Like they'll ultimately treat him like a starter if he plays that way, whether he's starting or not, whether Eric Gordon stays around or not. But there certainly f- feels like and, – and I don't know if it's awkward at all because everybody's so cool about it, but it definitely does seem like a passing of the guard of like, Here's Eric Gordon, the established player, who probably still is easily one of your five best players on the team, deserves to be in the starting lineup. But but also K.J. Martin emerging as a guy that clearly deserves a, a, at least a, a, a shot at that at a time when you're developing and trying to figure out exactly what you have with what you've drafted and signed. Yeah, and the thing is, though, K.J. is basically their their sixth starter. Right. Where- on nights where Gordon's not going to play the second game of a back-to-back or he's not going to play both ends of a back-to-back. So Martin starts the game that he doesn't play. And if Kevin Porter Jr. gets hurt one night, then they're just going to slide K.J. Martin into that spot as well. So, you know, if they have somebody go out one through four, then it will be K.J. Martin who gets the start in their place. And they might want to start him. It's, you know, they might want to, you know, with one of the centers, if something happens there, then maybe they can go small with the lineup. But, I mean, you don't have to start to have an impact on a team. And as long as he's playing and he's playing plenty of minutes, I don't know what the minutes average is right now, but and also just because, you know, Gordon's not going to play necessarily, you know, Gordon's probably going to be limited to 30 minutes every single night. So you're seeing Martin get an opportunity with the rest of the starters. And, you know, I mentioned this, you know, when we first jumped on each of the last two games, Martin has gotten five minutes with that starting group. And I do think that that matters and that's getting, giving him, you know, experience with those guys. And I think it just shows how much of a, of a priority he really is right now for them. Well, well, not just that, Adam. I would say it, it also is a credit to Martin and how he's developed as a player that he actually provides you that flexibility, not just 
as a three, four option or four or five option or whatever it is. It really is, like you say, two through five, like really interchangeable with almost anybody in the lineup. Like and, and, and even Kevin Porter, like if Kevin Porter Jr. is like you mentioned, the, if the point guard is out, you can slide someone down, put him somewhere that makes more sense. Like and, and the fact that he can effectively, you know, solid to good play for positions now is a credit to him and and something that has created that value uh, with him in the team. Yeah, I think when he was first drafted, he was thought of more, yeah, he'll play some four and then he can play some small ball five. And now it feels like the majority of his minutes this season have come from the three. And it just shows that how well-rounded his game has become where I think last year he really struggled to put the ball on the floor, make plays for others. And this year he's doing that at a very high level. He's putting the ball on the floor. He can get out on the break. Now uh, he can, he can pass the ball a little bit right now. The three point shot has been, you know, a little bit more consistent, but he just, he just knows how to play. And he's a really, he's turned into a really good defensive player, not just with the highlight blocks, but he he's in the right place most of the time. And that matters you know, oftentimes more than, than the highlight block. So uh, it's been a really good season for him. It, I was just interested how he would come in after the off season and after the summer and his dad, you know, saying what he said on that one podcast and, and then how uh, KJ wanted, he, he said that he wanted to be traded and he wasn't around Houston very much during the off season, but he came in and you could tell his game is, is really completely different today than what it was, you know, back in, back in April. And it's a credit to him for having the focus and for having the drive to do that. All right, man, we talk about KJ on the break and transition, man. I'm going to get us out of here on this because I got a scenario in my head that I want to play out. And maybe this is me being kind of a, a shitster or like wanting wanting anarchy or, or I don't know what it is. But I think about how that game ended with KJ Martin on the break with an opportunity to punctuate that win over the Milwaukee Bucks, but he does the classy thing and the correct thing, just to be clear. Like, I want to be honest. Like, he he did the right thing by dribbling the ball out. No need to pile on on the Bucks. You've won the game by five points. No need to pile on, right? But because of how that Pelican Suns game ended with Zion going up and dunking, and I know he was somewhat apologetic about it after the game and remorseful about it after the game, but I didn't like how the Suns pouted about it. I like watching Zion dunk. I like watching KJ Martin dunk or Jalen Green or anybody with an opportunity to do that. So scenario I'm rooting for Tuesday night against the Suns. Obviously, Rockets fans want them to win. But more importantly, I want, I, I, I want an opportunity at the end of the game for KJ Martin to rub it in like Zion did and to hell with the Suns for not stopping it and winning the game themselves. Like, like why not celebrate that? Think about it, Adam, like the, the Pelicans, the team that traded away Anthony Davis is actually now the one with the star in Zion. Everybody wanted to make the fat jokes about Zion and look at him playing at a border. I wouldn't say MVP level, but he's on, he's damn near unstoppable. Like, I don't think, I don't think there's an answer for him. And, and here they are at the top of the Western Conference. And where are the Lakers with Anthony Davis, who who still great, obviously. But maybe he's actually in the MVP conversation. But look at how that's working out, where the Pelicans have this moment now. They're at the top of the Western Conference for however long it is, you know, but a serious early 
contender or a third, what are we, a third through the season or whatever it is. And if the Rockets were to do that, coming off a win against the Milwaukee Bucks, having beaten, you know, the, the, the Sixers the week before, you know, they don't have to talk about the game against the Spurs, you know, having some recent wins against really good teams, why not celebrate at the end, man? Why not, why not bask in your moment, man? You sure the fans want them to win? Well, we talked about that too, man. Like it, that was why I was tongue in cheek in the last episode about are they too good for their own for their own good, right? Like I think they might be. Like they're they're not. I'm not trying to oversell the Rockets here, right? Like we get what's going on. They're about what we thought they were, okay? But but they're winning games. I regret a few episodes ago, early on when we started the podcast, saying, hey, Adam, we're not going to be talking about a lot of wins when we get on the podcast because it seems like every damn podcast we do, they didn't want a game and beat a good team at that lately, you know, every time. So I don't know, man. Like, I, don't, I, I where should they be with that? Like, at this point, you know, the, it, even winning these games, they're still in the mix. Like, they're still, what, the bottom – with the third or fourth worst record in the league. So it's like, even with this, it's like they're winning every other game. And if they do that, they're still on pace to be pretty bad. Yeah, I don't expect that to continue. But yeah, there there is value, though, to winning games and trying to win games just because it builds up strong habits. And I do think one thing that, that John Lucas said after last night's game was that we hide behind we're young. We're not great, but we're better than young. And I do think that it's important to have that mindset of, yeah, we might be young, but we still need to go out and try to win these games. And that's going to to build some momentum moving forward. Maybe it maybe doesn't get us anywhere this year, but next year it's going to build, it's going to have some good habits going into next year and the year after. And it's going to tell you who belongs at this level and who doesn't. Yeah. And, and one thing about the, you know, the question of, are you sure fans want them to win at this point like everybody understands where they are and kind of like it, it looks like a full-on tank but again on the point of Jalen Green like he seems to be emerging as the player that you tank for so maybe like me as somebody who does you know behind the scenes root for the team like look at it like and wants good things to happen for the team I do kind of look at Jalen Green as that guy already and anybody that you're drafting this year, like whoever that guy is, should fit into the grand scheme of things of that, of that being your centerpiece going forward and sort of what you're building the team around him and, and the pieces that you already have now. So like I maybe because I like the foundation already and, and, and them winning these games makes me feel better about the foundation already, makes me feel less inclined to be like, no, like you got to be like the Texans and go get Bryce Young. You got to go get the number one overall pick. And I know the, the number one guy obviously is in this situation is a, is probably a much more sure thing than even Bryce Young. But because you you have much more pieces than those guys do, you know, like you feel much better about the foundation that's been, been built with the Rockets and what's going on there. So it makes you feel better about, hey, maybe if you don't get that guy, you're still going to get somebody that's going to fit in the grand scheme of things. But Look, man, we've gone long. We've got Tuesday, a lot of home. We were talking about this before we started recording, man. A lot of home games. Uh, Tuesday against the Suns, Thursday against the Miami Heat. Make sure uh, y'all are checking us out. We're going to probably do this again Wednesday night, drop one, another one on Thursday night. Um, So 
reacting to the Suns game and looking ahead at the Heat game um, and, and talking about whatever happens in between there. So that's the H-Town Hoops podcast. Brandon Scott and Adam Spillane from SportsRadio610.com and Odyssey. Make sure you subscribe, like, rate, review, share the news about the podcast with whoever you can. And until next time, y'all be good.